Great. So I'm joined by Dr. Ben Miles. How are we today? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad. It's great to have you on. I would love to just open with a quick kind of two-minute rundown of who you are and what you're up to at the moment, because I know you're juggling a lot of things. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, that's a challenge. Um, who am I? Uh, good question. I don't know. My, my background, I'm a physicist, which is where I always kind of like start and frame things from. I did a PhD in nanophysics, finished a maybe five, six years ago or so. From that point, I've really been interested in how do we take technologies that are at the absolute breakthrough of science, of our understanding, uh, and make sure they don't just end up as interesting publications or uh, you know popular science articles, but actually that if they do have the potential to change the world, that they kind of get there. Uh, and that process is surprisingly difficult and and not very many folks are, are that good at it. Uh, and I really enjoy helping the process, whether that's on the science side, supporting scientists to upskill to become entrepreneurs and start companies, uh, or whether that's on the investment side, uh, helping investors look at new technologies, seeing which ones really could be differentiated, really could make the change that they purport to, uh, to be capable of doing, uh, and making sure that those things do actually get funded. Um, so I run a few different companies, uh, Spin-Up Science is one of them. Uh, it's aspirational in its nature. It tries to support scientists to uh, upskill and create companies. And then Science Angel Syndicate is the other side of that. We help investors, uh, some of which are very scientifically literate, some of which are seasoned investors, but aren't at the forefront of science, uh, really spot the great opportunities um, and make sure that uh, money connects with great entrepreneurs and cool technologies get started. And then what supports and underpins all of that, I run a YouTube channel, uh, and in theory, I run a podcast, but not, not very reliable at doing that bit, um, which I really just try and celebrate cool stuff, cool innovations, cool breakthroughs in science, explaining them, and making sure that they are part of the public consciousness, because I think we're in an increasingly important period of time where science really is shaping the world in which we live in. Um, not everyone needs to be an expert in it, but I think it's important that if people want to understand how things are working and what's happening, that there's free and unbiased, easy to access information that really is talking about the forefront of what it is that we understand about the world. Yeah, I think unbiased is really the key word there. And which is why I really like what you're doing with your YouTube channel. Obviously, we'll get to that in a bit. I remember last time when we spoke, you kind of said it's easier for a PhD to kind of learn the ropes when it comes to business rather than vice versa. Is that really the genesis of why you started Spin Up Science? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the genesis of science, I think, is complicated in its nature and partly comes from the fact I was a PhD myself who couldn't find a job because there weren't any. Uh, I think increasingly at the moment, academia is a really hard place to be. 50% of all people that complete a PhD are out of academia and science within a year of finishing the PhD, which is bad if you're planning career trajectory in that route. And increasingly, industry isn't necessarily that interested in absorbing mass talent, PhD or scientific uh, credential individuals as it once was because doing R&D is really expensive. Uh, so I think the model is shifting a little bit to big industry groups really being interested in buying winners, buying technologies that have been advanced a little bit and then bringing them into the big portfolio. And that really opened an opportunity for in my mind, that said, well, we've got a bunch of really capable individuals, scientists that aren't finding the opportunities that maybe they want. Could we help create those opportunities? And could they be the people that actually drive them forward? Because I think so often scientists are 
almost the the token expert in the room of like the guys that ultimately have to get the job done. But, uh, you know, if you, you wouldn't necessarily choose to follow them or listen to them in any other kind of realm or remit, um, I think with a little bit of retooling, actually scientists become unbelievable, capable, capable entrepreneurs. And I think they build businesses that are, you know, kind of one in a million type businesses that really can only be built with deep scientific expertise behind them. So I think it's a really interesting space to work in. How, how do we change that perception, do you think? Or maybe on a slightly more practical level, because I think what you're saying rings true a lot in terms of, you know, we've had this bull market last 10 years. There's a lot of people out there that want to be entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs' sake. Mm. I would maybe liken it to like, you know, people being career politicians who say, you know, I want to be a politician as opposed to going out into the field, getting the expertise, getting credentials, getting real world experience, and then maybe later in life coming to the world of politics. I feel like there's maybe a little bit of a parallel there in terms of, you know, how do you encourage this kind of maybe 30-year-old, 40-year-old scientist who's an expert in their field to actually go and commercialize their expertise um, in contrast to, you know, what maybe I would say probably upwards of 80% of the entrepreneurial landscape is at the moment, which is a lot of kind of 20-somethings listening to podcasts, being inspired and being like, oh, I've got to go out there and create something as quickly as possible. How do we change that perception? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's a hundred, whole bunch of different components associated with that. I think the the easiest one to tackle is just there isn't that much visibility of scientists becoming entrepreneurs because you don't really go into a scientific career thinking entrepreneurship is kind of the end pathway for you. Almost no one goes into science thinking that. But I would argue the opposite. The, the same way going, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago or so, going into computer science was an unbelievable step change advantage in your capability to do entrepreneurial activity or company creation. Increasingly going into science is now that step change capability. Um, that's a whole realm of companies called deep technology companies, deep technology counter to shallow technology, which is r- rudely referred to as like software companies nowadays. Um, but I think the key thing that does it is visibility of role models of people going down that pathway. And that isn't like, you know, the, the whoever, Elon Musk's of the world, because they've already they've already kind of been there and done it and made a big success. I think you need to see people actually at the early stages of it, taking technologies that aren't very robust and don't necessarily function yet out of labs and doing the, the, the mechanics of startup creation and technology development to get them to the point where they do become interesting. And I think the closer and more transparent you can make that activity, the more people realize how unbelievably cool it is and how impact creating it is, and the more people will want to go that route. So that's kind of my internal ethos anyway. That's why I really like shining a bit of a spotlight on people that are going through that pathway at the earlier stages rather than at the, yeah, it kind of looks like they've made it, you know, it's a Tesla type stage. I really like that as well because... I can relate to it strongly. You know, I was very much into science and kind of engineering, these kind of things when I was a kid. And then you do, you do just get a little bit sucked into that world of like, rat race, I have to make money. You know, my success is measured by these metrics and it just becomes is this very kind of mechanical formula as opposed to following your passions and understanding what really drives you and motivates you. So I think it is necessary to almost, you know, have those people, those figures such as yourself that kind of kickstarts that, you know, that fire that you may have had in the past or or even, you know, going into your into later adulthood actually to inspire a new passion in yourself. So I think, yeah, 100% what you're doing is um, absolutely critical. You touched on kind of deep tech there. Maybe can you 
elaborate on that definition a bit more, how you would describe deep tech, and then talk about, you know, maybe some of the handful of technologies that you think are going to be driving in the next few decades. Maybe the way I can frame the second part is by thinking of technologies that might be commonplace in the next 50 years um, that we have no clue about today in the same way that, you know, people in the 60s would have no conception of, you know, what a smartphone is, for example. Totally, yeah. No, um, everyone has a slightly different definition, which I'll largely disagree with, of deep technology companies. Um, simple definition, I would say, it's technologies coming from fundamental advances in science. So that could be physics, biology, chemistry, etc. cetera. Uh, it's often kind of conflated and merged with uh, the kind of current industry revolution that we're going through, which is how do we take interesting advances in science and interface them with what we're already very good at, which is this digital capability. So it's how does it meet automation, robotics, AI, et cetera? How do you apply those technologies into biology? How do you apply those technologies into chemistry, et cetera? Um, but that's kind of the forefront of where we're working. Things that are only very recently discovered, things that are still very, very, very far away often from market. Typically, times to get a deep tech company or deep tech idea into the marketplace, it might be another five, seven, 10 years by comparison to a software company, you might have something in the marketplace six months, a year, 18 months after you actually have your initial idea, at least a minimum viable product or something like that. Um, and what are those technologies? Those technologies are all the things that people are talking about that always feel 10 to 30 years away, you know, fusion, uh, quantum computers, quantum algorithms, synthetic biology, CRISPR, gene editing, all of those different things, which at the moment sound halfway between magic and science fiction, uh, but increasingly are stuff that we can regularly do and is becoming more and more engineering-like. Uh, and when I say engineering-like, I mean you can actually do it and reliably hope to see the same outcome after multiple times, whereas you know, in early science, sometimes whatever, the moon needs to be in the right place, you need to have the right breakfast for you to have any hope of getting reproducibility in some of your early, early, early results. So moving into that engineering space of all of these technologies is really interesting. Um, and as, as it happens, I think that's why we will start to see a massive exponential ramp up in things that felt like pipe dreams actually becoming realities. I think the biggest ones that we'll see that will be the most impactful are things in the green energy space. I think fusion in particular is one I'm really interested in just because well, I'm a physicist by background, so I'm biased. Um, but I think there's a lot of companies out there doing a lot of different approaches to it, all of which there's a lot of people saying, oh, it's still 5, 10, 15, 20 years away, so why even bother? Uh, but fundamentally, it's those sorts of technologies that will define the next several centuries of our economy, um, much like it was software companies that defined the past 50 years or so of our economy. Um, so I think really this is the space to be working in at the moment. I think it's really interesting, uh, particularly for scientists, but also just for technology enthusiasts as a whole. I really like that framing of kind of it's entering the engineering space because I think it's quite, a lot of people give that kind of dismissive, as you just said, you know, this is 30 years off and it's in this perpetual loop of just being so far in the future. Do you find it's typically like that? Like if we look to the past and the way these deep, you know, science heavy technologies are developed, do you find it's typically, you know, small incremental changes or is it, you know, really over the course of many years, one step function that seems to 
ignite all of the progress. I mean, I think from an external point of view, most of us realized just how far AI has progressed with obviously ChatGPT last year. But, mm. you know, this wasn't some kind of major breakthrough. Frankly, if you talk to insiders, you listen to what they were talking about. It's like, we've been working on this for years. It was just at the right time to put in front of the public. Do you feel like that is the case of most deep tech technologies or are we still waiting for a number of the technologies you just mentioned for that one big kind of step function breakthrough? Yeah, I think I think the the general market has changed recently and maybe the past 10 years or so cuz deep tech in a startup sense has really only just emerged, you know, you like you would have your, your whoever, your GSKs, your your big pharmaceutical or your big uh, engineering companies or whoever working on all of these sorts of things and they have been for donkey's years. Um but I think moving this these sorts of technologies into the startup space has really only been unlocked for a few key reasons. I think it has actually been good that scientists are struggling to find jobs because it meant that they've had to go do other stuff. Uh, and some of them got on to create companies, which are these kind of first generation of startup deep tech companies. I think equally there's been a lowering or maybe an increase in the availability of access to infrastructure that allows you to actually do this sort of stuff. So, I mean, back in the day, if you wanted to do a chemistry company, chemistry company was the first startup company that I worked in after my PhD. Having access to just the fume hoods, the, the lab space to do chemistry without causing a disaster or blowing something up um, was really hard unless you were a big company that could afford that sort of stuff. But increasingly, access to those sorts of spaces is being commoditized. One, because it's a very sensible play in this COVID. We might go in lockdown times. You know, maybe people don't need to work in the office. Well, you know where they have to work? They have to work in lab spaces. You can't do that sort of work at home. Um, so I think it's very sensible from that sort of play. But what it means is that those that sort of infrastructure is popping up around everywhere, the UK, the world at the moment. And it's giving access to people trying interesting ideas cheaper than they otherwise were. And I think that's also kind of tying into why industry is saying, hang on, there's a whole bunch of ideas that need testing. It's totally insurmountable for us as a problem space to try and tackle all of these ideas. So let's just team up or acquire the guys that look like they are furthest ahead in this field. And I think that's driving a lot of the acquisition kind of activity at the moment. Um, it's a, you know, that would be interesting. We could have done it ourselves maybe, but it's better that you guys tried it. <laughs> And then we just bought it when it actually started to work, I guess. Um, I think that's broadly kind of what's happening in the space and why it's coming into this sudden period where it feels like technologies are really taking off at a rapid rate of knots, whereas previously, five, ten years ago, maybe, uh, there really just wasn't this volume of activity. And it's still early. It still is plenty more activity to be done, plenty more startup companies to be, to be built. Um, I don't think the wave is cresting at all. I think it's just building at the moment. Right, so actually kind of democratization and somewhat lowering of the barriers has actually really helped to drive recent innovations. Um, I think all of that makes sense, but I just want to maybe take a step back because in light of kind of, you know, AI developments and I want to hear as well where you fall on the side of kind of doomerism and AGI coming to end the world, or if it's actually good for humanity. But I think the more pertinent question is probably like, is there such thing as too much technology? So I think, you know, we're both probably techno optimists. We surround ourselves with similar people, similar minds all the time. I think if you're in the VC startup technology space, it's quite hard to actually evolve being in that bubble. Um, but some people may argue, you know, social media, the internet, 
for all their for all the goodness and quality they brought to our lives have actually detracted in some other areas. Mm-hmm. And it kind of begs the question of is this relentless pursuit of technology getting our heads down and just progress, progress, progress? Is that actually a small way to go about things, or should we be more conscientious about how we pursue technological progress? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting area, and I think like my main headspace around it has always been wisdom, uh, the knowledge of whether you should do that thing or should not do that thing, is most keenly honed off the back of failures or mistakes. Um, I think you know we can't help but in be in a position where technology development will be just dramatically outpacing our wisdom. We can do our best to say, oh, that feels scary. We should limit, we should regulate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But human beings are incredibly creative, both in their ability to come up with technology and in their ability to come up with things they shouldn't be coming up with or use cases they shouldn't be coming up with. Um, So whether it's AI accidentally turns around and says, hang on, humans aren't a good thing on this planet, or whether it's someone you know, more of a malicious actor using things in a way that they shouldn't be used. It's a really difficult space, both to regulate, uh, to manage, to make sure that you aren't restricting innovation, that you aren't putting too tight of a fist around it, because some of these technologies have unbelievable capabilities uh, in terms of improvement of human health or health of the planet. But there's always going to be the other side of them, you know, gene gene editing, uh, engineering, et cetera can do a huge amount of good for us. It could also do an equal or maybe much greater amount of bad for us. Um, And as those sorts of technologies become, maybe not household technologies at the moment, but as they become more accessible, lower cost to access, it increases that, that lowering of that barrier, increases the likelihood that they are misused or mismanaged or misappropriated in some way. And I think at the moment, humanity doesn't have a good model or mechanism for how we treat that. Our regulatory agencies, I don't believe, are capable of moving at the speed that they need to move at. And it's a very different thing. Regulatory agency is, a, is it safe to put in the marketplace? Not how do we protect it so that it doesn't develop down a pathway that we can't wind back the clock on? Um, there isn't really a group that is responsible for doing that. And I think we talked about last time, you know, when they brought Mark Zuckerberg into Congress or the Senate or wherever they brought him into they shouted at him for doing bad social media things. You know, like the lack of technology awareness, computer savviness, even just how the internet works, knowledge among the senior politicians and decision makers was evident, right? And I mean, that's software, right? Like software's easy by comparison. Software's been around for 50 years. Like we've only just started getting our hands on the really difficult stuff to understand, like whether it's, you know, I don't want to pick on any particular field because then it makes that one feel particularly dangerous, but so we'll just go back to what the other one and say bioengineering or something like that. Um, you know, the capabilities of something just in that space alone, like we don't have enough experts out there uh, working on it, let alone acting as regulatory advisors back to central governments to help them come up with policies that protect people and countries and establishments and things like that. It's a really hard space to, um, to look after. And I, I think... I want to be an optimist about it. I am an optimist about it, um, but I also am aware that it only takes one. It takes one to really take what could have been amazing, fantastic, world-changing technology and put a permanent black mark across it. Um, how we look after that, I'm not really sure. 
I think that's the scientist said you that just wants to experiment and see how it goes out and then kind of come back to the drawing board and iterate again. I think it's a great mentality to have. And going back to your other point as well about Zuck, it, it reminds me as well of kind of crypto. I think early this year, they only now the regulators started jumping in and mm. trying to kind of untangle the whole mess about, you know, two to three years after it's still being relevant. So it yeah. really shines a light on, you know, how slow everyone is to move. And maybe just... um. If I put like a little twist set on the last question I asked, which is, I mean, let's say the example of nuclear fusion, how do you think we can stop, you know, the power of kind of unlimited energy, which is hopefully this goal that we'll achieve in the next decades, if not centuries? How can we stop that kind of accruing to the wrong people? And maybe this gets a little bit too political or philosophical, but in terms of, you know, the way the capitalist structure is set up, where power accrues to the 1%, how do we stop that from kind of being a force that is used for evil? And how do we stop that from, you know, per perpetuating the situations that, for example, developing countries are in right now? How do we help the global South perhaps have access more broadly to these technologies that we're developing, frankly, mostly in the Western world? Um, and again, it's quite easy to look at these things with the lens of, you know, first world, we're driving the innovation, this and that. But, you know, upwards of 70%, 80% of the world may never even see these technologies. How should we think about reconciling that over the next kind of decades? Uh, so I think fusion in particular is a really interesting one because it's got the highest capability, maybe in the near term, to create just fundamental discrepancy across populations. One, because it's so difficult to get right. It's so infrastructure uh expensive and because it gives such utility to whoever cracks it first. Um, I like the idea of living in a world where once we work out how to do it, that knowledge gets shared across everyone. But I think the likelihood of that happening is basically zero. Um, I think, you know, it will follow normal commercialization models of the countries that can afford it, will afford it. Um, I like the idea that it becomes a free market and that it isn't excluded from any particular country uh, for whatever political or otherwise reason. Um, but, you know, I can also 100% see that happening. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, energy is a way bigger commodity than I think most people comprehend. And the idea that you can have unlimited of it, uh, maybe just within the the boundaries of a certain country or certain select group of countries puts them at an unbelievable economic advantage over other countries. And the question is like, what do you do to close that gap? Or maybe more frankly, like will the countries that are in the lead be interested in closing that gap uh, for countries not in the lead or will they just compound upon that uh, position? Um, I don't know that there is a good answer to that at the moment. I think the, the, Maybe the saving grace, but this is totally conjecture. Maybe the savings grace, saving grace is that um, it'll be very difficult for small groups to achieve this by themselves. I think it will be largely done in collaboration between governments, large corporates, and small startups, probably. Um, and I think that slight removal of any one individual group being owner of the technology in its entirety potentially helps collaboration facilitated getting into more places than it otherwise would. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's just one of the many examples of if, if we get technologies that fundamentally give one nation a massive advantage over all other nations, 
is it in that nation's interest? Um, depends on who comes up with it, I suppose, as to how easily it is shared across other groups. I think we've like tried to do the right thing in the past, but a lot of the economic policies that we've brought to bear to help the global south upskill have also kind of put them in positions of debt uh, or put them in positions of um, not not being the infrastructure or technology owners themselves. I mean, arguably that kind of boils down to being in debt still. Um, so they are still heavily dependent on the countries that have been first crossed the line, uh, inventor of these core technologies that they have brought them in. It's an, it's an interesting space. I think, um, you know, the next 10 to 20 years, we'll see a marked difference in global power, probably off the back of the technology capabilities that many different groups are capable of realizing. Um, that plus climate change <laughs> probably probably is going to be a really complicated. I, we were talking earlier about where's the best country to live. Honestly, I think all, all bets are off at the moment. Uh, somewhere not on the equator just due to the temperature is probably a good bet. Uh, and then somewhere that has high technology capability is probably your second safest. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a strange place in the, in the coming decades, I think. Okay, yeah. I mean, let's talk about climate change then because obviously <laughs> a topic that you're very passionate about and that is at the kind of forefront of the news at the moment. Uh, how do we begin to go about solving it? Because, you know, I've spoken to a lot of energy-focused VCs who are obviously, you know, very, you know, the deep tech ones at least are very headstrong on kind of hardware. This is this must be solved by electrochemistry. This must be solved by new hydrogen technologies. Um, a lot of them with the mindset that, you know, the government does need to jump in and kind of give subsidies to kind of promote these technologies in the early stages to such a point that they can reach adoption because at the end of the day, market forces still apply. You know, people are not going to adopt solutions that are more expensive and have a green premium just because of this future promise. I think humans have, have shown over many hundreds of thousands of years that we do not operate in that way. Um, so do you see it in the same way or kind of how do you see the, the problem of climate change from a, a startup and technology perspective? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, to, just to your point that you already kind of talked around, people buy the cheapest thing that is closest to the way they already operate because they don't like change. They don't like paying more money for change in particular. Um, so I, I guess the challenge is how do you make that, how do you advance those technologies so that they are available? Uh, and I think a lot of people say, you know, we've got the technologies that we need uh, if only people would adopt them and roll them out. I don't actually think that's true. I think there is still a lot of technology development to be done so that, because people don't want less. They don't want less than what they have, and they definitely don't want to pay more for less, um, which to a certain extent is perfectly reasonable to a certain extent is why we're in this kind of problem. Um, so I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone thinks this is one particular technology challenge in particular that we're trying to overcome. This is as many solutions as we can possibly bring to bear. Um, and then as many levers as we have to our disposal, government probably being one of the biggest drivers of these sorts of things, coercing them into adoption, either by doing sensible things like saying internal combustion engines probably aren't that good of a thing, we should stop selling them, uh, or by offering discounts um, and subsidies to people that are going the way of solar. I think the thing that's disappointed me that I've seen is um, it's almost that these subsidies and drivers are taken away too early uh, only of, often typically offered to like prime the system, but then not to support the conversion. Like, I mean, five years ago or so, the UK government ran a scheme that 
discounted the price of solar. Awesome. Great thing to do. Very sensible. Uh, they take it away as soon as people have become sufficiently um, convinced that solar is actually just a, not a total scam. So again, the price point is way higher than it needs to be, and it's another five or 10 years before actually you get meaningful amounts of conversion into this thing. I think you know we, we just need a line in the sand and a strict attitude change towards, are we actually trying to do this thing? It's fundamentally the most important challenge that we could tackle. Uh, and I say that as a someone living in a company that company country that pretend is still useful to the world. You know, like we're doing our best to diminish our usefulness. But really, if if you're a country that is in a good position of power, you should be doing everything impossible to make sure that there isn't grand change across the global power spectrum. Uh, and a good thing or a very meaningful driver of that could be climate change and populations relocating and all of those sorts of pieces. So if you want to maintain the status quo, you maintain the status quo counterintuitively by adopting technologies that are quicker than than other groups, I think, Uh, making sure that you've got the next generation of, you know, climate change friendly, green, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Capability actually rolled out in your country because you don't want the problem to get worse than it already is. I don't, I don't really understand why no other governments have kind of arrived at that. That is the only sensible policy uh, decision that we could enact. I think everyone's really operating much more in the short term, much more in the next election cycle, much more what does the budget say at the moment, um, rather than how do we support three generations down the line, uh, make sure that we are still in the position that we want it to be and you know, all of those sorts of pieces. I, on a personal level, I definitely agree. Um, but I think, you know, Germany could be an example of a country that has kind of followed what you've put out there and mm-hmm. then had to, you know, kind of renege on their, maybe some of their decisions in terms of closing nuclear power stations and going all in into solar and then having to, you know, rely on natural gas again. Um, so I think there is a bit of a, a blend of short-term thinking as well as thinking for the long-term future. Um, so yeah, there, there is definitely nuance there. Then for in your personal opinion, how do you see it then? Is it as simple as kind of invest in solar till uh, fusion takes off? Or is there a world where we can have nuclear fission as well and SMBs and um, SMRs even, all of these kind of things in the middle um, from your personal standpoint? Uh, as in, is there probably like a world, there's probably a world that exists with a whole blend of different uh, right. grid-based power systems, probably. Just because I think like, 100% takeover from any one technology space. It's just hard to do and it's slow to do. Um, so there'll always be cracks and gaps for people to fill in, whether it's you know wind or solar or any of those other things. I think from a personal level, do the things that you can do as an individual to reduce footprint, although that's kind of an overused and oftentimes kind of negatively viewed approach. Um, from like a VC perspective, from like where we're investing at the moment, we're looking at additive technologies that can have useful impact across a whole host of different spaces. So I think, you know, just because you don't know what the marketplace is going to be in the future, the the best strategy is to do things that have high amount of pivotability and that should be successful regardless of which of the future universes we find ourselves in, whichever way the way of function collapses, you know, they still should have some useful utility and added value there, even if they aren't the primary mover. So as well, like kind of platform technologies um, in the broad kind of concept space. That's very interesting, actually, because 
you know, Karobi, if I'm wrong, but what you said there does sound a bit kind of a 180 on traditional startup advice. And would you say this is quite common when you're looking at deep tech startups in terms of, look, this technology is not at the forefront right now. You, you know, it's not a world where you're just going to get customers easily like the software world has been for the last 20 years. Is that something that founders should think about in terms of what different ways can your technology be applied in all of these future states as opposed to how can I get customers as fast as possible? I think it's actually quite a key, you know, nuance to point out. Totally is. Um, and it's, you know, probably that a lot of people that sat in startups or advise startups will fight over. Um, my headspace is because the time frame is so long and there is such a depth of uncertainty in a deep tech company over an eight or 10 or 15 year period prior to even entering the marketplace it's in your interest to have pivotability or platform capability baked into your core value proposition. And I want to preface that with what that doesn't mean is explore 10 different opportunities in parallel, because then you make 5% progress across 10 different things and all the investors say, what on earth are you spending our money on? We're not giving you any more. Um, so you still need a primary use case that you're driving for, but you also need a backup of, well, hang on, if the world actually skews a little bit and that regulatory pressure doesn't come into effect, say, how do we still make the economics work or how do we still find a viable place in the value chain? Maybe it wasn't that full value chain that we were hoping to deliver on, but maybe it's more like a, you know, a know-how consultancy, a licensing or something play that allows us to still survive as an entity and as a company. Um, I often look for that in early stage companies just because it tells me that the founder is thinking about opportunity crea creation. And it tells me that they are open to being wrong and that they are open to constantly looking at the market and saying, almost not on a day-by-day -day basis, but almost on a day-by-day -day basis, like, what is the best strategic move here? How is the world evolving? Because it takes like a part of, you know, all that, all those uh, metrics that you can't control and it feeds them in um, to your decision-making process in like a very iterative, sensible way. Uh, and stress again, what that doesn't mean is turn up one day saying one thing to investors and then five days later saying a different thing to investors. Investors don't want to hear that. Uh, but I don't mind if the entrepreneur in their head is thinking that because it just tells me they're listening to the market. And I think that's what makes good entrepreneurs, whether it's the opportunity they're working on or the next opportunity they go on to create. I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. And might be a little bit of a shock to some people in terms of probably advice they've heard in the past. Um, but I think it's even more relevant when you're talking about deep tech and when you're talking about this kind of increasingly uncertain world going forward. I think that's fantastic advice. And then if we, if we kind of continue that train of thought, then in terms of VCs, obviously the VC landscape at the moment is frankly flush with loads of bigger names and even smaller names that are used to investing in software that now kind of want to dip their toes into deep tech. Mm. Of course, alongside that, you see people such as yourself and many other shops um, popping up across the UK, uh, US and Europe that are dedicated towards deep tech. But how do you advise kind of VCs who are not so well versed in it to start thinking in those, those kind of terms? Um, those terms being, you know, a longer time horizon, you know, something that might not some kind of technology that might be operating in a not yet fully formed market um, and thinking about, you know, I might not even get my return for 10 plus years. Um, I can't really expect to see steady growth attraction. It may be some kind of step function change that happened. Um, is this something that VCs can easily wrap their head around or is it going to take like a whole uprooting of the current system? 
Yeah, I, uh, it's a really interesting space and question. Um, I mean, VC originally was like to back hardware plates, wasn't it? Which did have long time horizons. And then in the kind of, let's do the simplest, most cash generative uh, activity line of thinking, it became synonymous with backing software companies because the time horizon was shorter, because the scalability was easier. Um, the risk was, I don't know whether the risk is less or or not it depends depends who you talk to i suppose um but i think this is the goal and role of venture capital is to back these long-term plays where there is a lot of visioning a lot of risk a long time horizon and i think increasingly it really needs it's difficult for people that aren't expert in the space to play in that space i think you, you just get a lot of we see a lot of just ignorant bets being placed um, where like the, just the questions haven't been asked. That's why we started the the uh, angel group, Science Angel Syndicate, that we did because we just time and time again heard investors for the companies that we were building say, "This is really interesting," but either we can't diligence the science because we don't have anyone to turn to, or this is really interesting. We'll take a punt on it. And I was like, neither of those is really the phrases that I wanted to be said from a hopefully sensible money manager. But there's there just aren't very many. There aren't very many in the in the UK in particular that have the depth of experience, technical or operational, within an early stage deep tech company to genuinely look at these sorts of companies and say, you know, what will the obstacles be? How will you overcome the obstacles and actually add value to the founders? I think a lot of VCs are playing quite like a laid back game of of placing bets and nothing more. And I think just due to the nature of the space being as complicated as it is, you do need that other generation oftentimes or um, you know, buy side uh, of the of the table actually adding value, not just adding cash to the equation. Um, so I think you've seen a lot of people come into the green space and the clean tech space and the climate tech space and try and place bets. And now that market times are harder Quite a lot of them have withdrawn, um, realizing that it's not really where they see their most immediate returns and it's not where they add their most value. Um, so they are getting outcompeted by groups that are, I think, more value adding and more better positioned. So I think the market is kind of self correcting. It's a good space to be in. I think I, I can't, uh, I, I can't kind of dismiss wanting to do impact investments that do or sub- substantially uh, change making in the world, but I. I think it's very difficult to do that if you don't have at least core to your team the technical expertise to look at it. I think that's how you make investments in, you know, Theranos to to point a finger at an obvious name. Uh, and I think you only get a few chances of those in a small investment ecosystem like the UK of investors putting money behind a company that ultimately blows up uh, and was fraudulent from start to end. Uh, before the appetite for deep tech investment goes away. So it's really important that you protect against the poor investments made in that space. It's really interesting. I think there is, I'd love to hear your opinion on whether you think this is a good thing or not, but there are people I know personally, and I'm kind of seeing it increasingly more, that 
an expert, scientific expert, typically who understands the space very well, will be a consultant to these VC firms. And I think VC firms are becoming a bit more open to it instead of perhaps a more arduous method of kind of trying to hire someone who both wants to be in VC and has the background and is not looking to start a company. And as you know, probably personally, it's quite hard to find all of these in the higher property, especially in this market. Do you see that as being a model going forward whereby, you know, a scientist can actually jump in and say, look, I'll diligence all of this for you. Um, I can help you out on these aspects, maybe part-time, maybe in some kind of contracting role and provide this expertise to you? Or do you personally feel that that isn't actually enough and that the real decision makers at VC firms need to have that expertise themselves? I think I very rarely say things against the scientific community, but in my experience, uh, when we've brought interesting technology plays that maybe are on the fringe of our technical understanding to a consulting group of academic scientists, etc. Um, my usual read of their response is colder or harsher, maybe is a better word for it, um, than is necessary in the kind of pre-seed seed space where we operate. I think scientists are predominantly geared to find the problems that could happen in a scientific line of inquiry, say. Um, that's their job and their remit. And that's slightly different in its nature to the job of an entrepreneurial team. And the job of an entrepreneurial team is to be sophisticated in how you solve things that otherwise other groups in the world can't solve. So time and time again, when we went out to scientific advisors, they said, now nah, this doesn't work. And time and time again, when we took the time to then upskill on that technology, to talk to the founders, to see where the gaps were uh, and where the kind of milestones or the hurdles would be, Actually, they felt to us as a team that have run very complicated deep tech development uh, exercises ourselves, there are things that, yes, still would be risky, but were within the realm of risk tolerance for what we should be funding. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of about three to five companies in particular that we've backed. Those three to five companies are still around and have all hit the milestones and achieved the milestones that the academic teams said probably they would struggle to be able to ever hit within any sort of a timeline. Uh, and most of that was kind of 18 months ago when those lines have been held. So I, I, I think all that says, very long-winded answer to your question, but I think all that says, like, you can't replace the value that being a scientific operator brings to your capability to be a fund manager because that skill set is unbelievably hard otherwise to acquire. And hopefully what that means is that there is a great future for a lot of people that want to go into science and then want to go into entrepreneurship or startup companies and then want to go into VC, because I think that increasingly is a population that I would hire from 10 times out of 10 over someone that's just come with an MBA, say. Because I think just, just due to the nature of the space, it's much harder to have an MBA map to it and say sensible things than it is to take a PhD, say, and map to it and say sensible things over a short period of time. Hopefully that's good news for the scientists out there rather than bad news. Yeah, uh, it ties back to what we spoke about right at the start as well. And I think it just begs the question, you know, on a personal level, why have you not started anything yourself or have you started something yourself? Are you cooking in the background? Um, what's the situation there? Me? Yeah, you personally. Uh Good question. Um, I guess I built. I made the mistake of building a company that builds companies, which is <laughs> an exhaustive process. Just um, multiplying the difficulty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
So that's one of the companies I run and not the software company, not the investment company and not the YouTube company. Um, so we try and build somewhere between five and 10 companies per year, all deep tech companies, all spinning out from universities. So, you know, pre pre-seed, um, you know, nebulous in their idea, but probably have some proof of concept data. Um, that's, I think, where I'm happiest. Uh, so um, we chatted before we went went live about like what what actually should I be doing with my time and my headspace. Um, that's I think the bit of venture creation or venture funding that is most interesting to me is how do you take a a thing that is a zero, maybe proof of concept data, maybe it's zero point one, and turn it into one. You know how do you do that exercise? Because that's as much about realizing the potential of technology as it is bringing a group of people that have the potential to be great entrepreneurial founders or a great team, but otherwise are, you know, distracted by all their own personal comings and goings of their desired career project, uh, progression or direction and bring all those pieces together and bring investment into it and bring public funding into it and get it out the university and make sure the time frame for this technology advancement maps to what the real world is doing, that there won't be regulatory barriers in place and all of those other pieces. That is just such a fascinatingly complex task. Um, it's where I spend, I would say, I'm not supposed to say, but it's where I spend probably 60 to 70% of my time. Where is it? Supposed to send twenty percent of my time there, uh, but it's is absolutely the most interesting bit because I think it's venture creation and entrepreneurship in its truest form, even if it's not necessarily my core scientific technology that I'm progressing forward. Um, but other than that, we've got some ideas for our own stuff too. We just don't have a don't have a single minute to even pretend to advance them. Um, oh, that's hilarious. But I think even in, even what you just listed, you say okay, you spend sixty percent of your time doing those those activities but i mean all of that is divided into so many different things right i mean it involves talking to so many different types of people ideating with them trying things out experimenting so there is definitely that element of scientific um intrigue there for yourself personally as well as the variation of different tasks that you may not get sitting in a lab obviously you know talking to other investors entrepreneurs sourcing etc um it kind of brings me to something i want to talk about as well because it's something that i've been thinking about which is like what are your what are your personal core drivers and what i mean by this is i used to work in banking i worked there for a couple of years and you kind of spoke to people and they were like yeah i really love deal flow yeah i love doing deals to get a real kick out of it and i was like really um you're 25 when you were 16 or even younger, when you were 10, did you really think like, I get a real kick out of sitting in Excel and PowerPoint? You know, like you, you did it, right? Maybe you grew up and you you like the work on the day-to-day, but kind of what are the fundamentals that you enjoy? And I was thinking, because, it, it, you know, it can't be Excel and PowerPoint. It can't be like, because you didn't even know about that when you were younger. So like, what kind of mm. drove you? And for me personally, it kind of came down to like fitness, taking care of myself, health. Um, and also like hard engineering, kind of working with physical projects that don't only exist maybe in the software realm, but like in the physical realm as well. Um, so how would how would you think about that for yourself? Is that is that kind of an exercise you've done where you've sat down and kind of look at what you enjoyed in the past and tried to tie it to potential career progression? Because I think a lot of people my age and a bit younger, maybe recent, recently graduated or still in uni, are very, very sensitive to, you know, what the market is saying at the moment, what their parents are saying, what their peers are saying, you know, this is the right path for you, et cetera. And particularly pertinent because my sister's actually going through that right now. Um, how do you suggest that, you know, these people kind of look at their lives and plot a path forward based on their own interests and something they could spend the next 10, 20 years 
going into because it is very easy to get swayed away from maybe what you wanted to do when you were younger, what your main focus in life is just because of your environment. God, that's deep. It's a very, think, very uh, tough question. You can <laughs> feel free to tackle just one part of it if you want. <laughs> no, there's a lot of stuff I liked in it. I think like there's a whole bunch of different directions to go in. Where, where I will start is um, I'm not good at doing stuff that I don't enjoy. So I, I only do stuff I enjoy. So, you know, the word that I use as work is just kind of could be uh, exchanged quite easily for like, how do I want to spend my life? Because uh, I think of this bit as kind of all the things that I'm really interested in and that I'm motivated by and that I would be doing, even if they didn't pay me, because quite a lot of them don't pay me. <laughs> um, I've always also been interested in just like pivotability, which is a point we brought up earlier just about companies. But in personal pivotability, the idea of being kind of unkillable, you know, like one of my ideas or one of my projects doesn't work, well, it doesn't really matter because I've got three to four to five things on the go that are equally interesting, equally capable of scaling, and I can just switch my attention to them. And I think that's always been something I've been interested in, and it's taught me from a very early age that like failure is not a bad thing. Failure, in fact, is a good thing because it takes one thing off your plate and you can suddenly like breathe a little bit easier and you can focus more of your attention on other stuff. Like it's wonderful, the idea that one of these projects might get killed at some point. Um, has always been, you know, I, I just like my plate full. I, I was fascinated by the idea of like, can I take on so much stuff that just there is no more capability, there is no more capacity. Uh, and I just, you know, curl up into a ball, give up at some point. And so far I have not reached that. Point, but I've always been like interested by like how fully saturated could my my brain be to the point where I'm just like no more, no thank you. Um, that point I haven't reached, and what I've instead found is that in all the bits that feel maybe only vaguely, desperately connected, I learn so many things that are also advantageous in other pieces. Like I think the really difficult thing I found in a PhD was when I was trying to pick what career pathway I wanted. It felt like I was looking through you know, like a cardboard tube at this like wonderful world called industry. And I was like, well, I just can't almost get enough vision or understanding of the thing as a whole to really say where my utility is or where I would enjoy it or what I should be doing. And as a result, basically from the moment that I got into the first startup company that I worked in, I was looking for side things that I could do. Uh, and when I was creating my first company, Spin Up Science, I was also simultaneously working in that first startup company uh, and employed at an incubator and doing something else, which I can't remember, but I remember I had four things I was in theory supposed to be doing. Um, and as soon as I kind of got into that like portfolio approach of like things that are interesting to me, I never wanted to go in any other direction. I never wanted to go to, definitely didn't want to go to a position where I was being told too heavily what things to do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's like, I can't think of anything worse. Um, but increasingly, like I just wanted that diversity of things. Like I really like spend a morning writing a script for a YouTube video or sitting on a podcast or interviewing someone or something like that. You know, my afternoon is sitting uh, in a VC call and deciding whether to invest in a company or not. Uh, my evening is having calls with some of the founders of companies that we've built um, and helping them, you know, deal with an investor problem or pick a chairperson or how do they deal with this employee or what should they be prioritizing at the moment or, you know, they're stressed out and what should they be thinking about in what order, any of those sorts of things. I just think there's such wonderful diversity in it. 
Um, and I guess the truism for all those kind of lines of uh, inquiry for me was just, I like working with people, even though I'm a physicist, even though I'm by self-definition an introvert and was very happy being left alone for four years of my PhD in a room with the lights turned off with no other people in the room. I loved that experience. I really like working with people. and I really like working on projects that I think at the end of them have some fundamental needle moving impact to them. Um, and that needs to be meaning. I don't really have a metric to it, but it needs to be meaningful, sufficient to me that when times are tough, which they will be at points in time, I still am sufficiently interested and motivated by them to give it the time and the energy that it needs to try and make it come good. Because there is some future vision of you know a new type of vaccine or a new way of looking after people with this morbidity or something like that. Um, is always what I look for. And I think if you can find those things that are personally motivating to you, uh, that helps a lot make work feel not like work ever as much as possible. I think the thing that's always interested me is, or been interesting to me is that I just haven't been as financially motivated as I would have expected, having been a PhD student with zero money, a student before that with zero money, an entrepreneur after that with zero money, you know, the the needle hasn't flicked where I'm just like, no, I'm only doing these things if the, the revenue opportunity is big enough. Still very much, it's like, well, I really like this team. I really like this technology. I really like the impact it could happen. Um, and then we rely on the sensible infrastructure of the business to make sure we aren't spending our time on things that are, you know, only small drops in the ocean, but that's something that I actually had to bake into how the business works rather than how I personally think about picking projects, which was surprising. But I think just reflects on the fact that I've got the core of what I care about down, uh, then I've been able to you know, make sure that those projects are what I want to be working on anyway. And the bonus is they hopefully should be high revenue opportunities, good investments, et cetera, et cetera. No, thanks for that insight. It's fantastic. And I, I would say that money is overrated. Um, I think having huge amounts of personal money, I think is probably quite overrated. I, I do not believe. Again, ask me, ask me when I was 18, I would have said the complete opposite, right? I think this is a part of maturity and understanding more what you want to do. I say this to my friend constantly, that we talk a lot about this kind of stuff and this situation where you have to want to be successful in the right way to you. If that makes sense in terms of, follow something that you're happy doing and that brings you joy every day. So you're not constantly chasing this carrot on a stick. It might be money. It might be fame. It might be a certain achievement, a goal, some concrete goal that you want to achieve. I've been in those places in my life and it's kind of, you start to marry your own self-worth to these goals. And it's like, if I don't achieve them, I'm X, Y, Z. And life is so much more of a journey and it should be about kind of chasing what, you know, kind of gets you out of bed in the morning. Mm. And listening to what you just said there, it does feel like uh, while you do have lots of different projects going on, it seems like over time you have funneled it down to kind of a core area, which is deep tech, which is science, um, that is true to yourself because obviously the YouTube channel is related to science. Everything you do with your visa, uh, with fellow investors and with your companies is to do with deep tech. Um, I said this, you know, similar person came to me. She works in the space industry. She was like, I'm doing so many things at the moment. I'm doing X, Y, Z, this. I've got this job. And I was like, yeah, but they're all on the space. They're all in the space sector. So I actually see that as kind of the same thing. I think a trap that I've fallen into a lot of people as well is like, I need to have two or three completely different projects or hobbies that pull me in different directions at different times of day. I think a lot of student athletes go through this as well. 
Mm. If you're a student athlete competing to like a D1 level or a, a high national level, you can feel pulled in one direction by your sporting commitments and your sporting aspirations, but also understanding that you need to get a good degree. And I've seen people kind of struggle with that dichotomy a little bit. Um, I think what you're saying is 100% true, but I would just add that I think it does boil down to finding that one arena where you want to operate and then finding the different angles within that arena that actually satisfy your curiosity. Because you can, if you are a naturally curious person like me and you both clearly are, it's very easy to get pulled in that kind of five different ideas that are all unrelated direction and pursue them for so long that you kind of become a jack of all trades, master of none kind of situation. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like funneling in on your your sphere of genius is the or where your unfair advantage is. You know, like I, I think makes makes a lot of sense. It's I guess now that I actually get to vocalize it, it's probably one of the earliest things that I pick when I'm looking at new opportunities. It's like, am I actually capable of adding value there uniquely to what other people could do? And if anyone could do it, it's probably not a sensible one to go after, just because the level of competition, you know, then it becomes a dice roll game. Right, kind of less interesting than one that you can engineer to probably have some advantage just naturally due to your background or your connections or your personality or whatever it is, skill set as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think it's the T-shaped person argument, right? Which is another friend of mine loves to use that, which is for anyone who doesn't know, kind of, you know, be a specialist to a certain degree, kind of understand different industries, be able to talk to people crucially, you know, have good social skills, but also be an expert in one kind of domain. So it becomes like a little T here. You don't want to be just, you know, software engineer who's like an expert coder, but can't communicate with the rest of his team. At the same time, you don't want to be, you know, your typical MBA who just doesn't really have any deep expertise in any one area. Um, so personally, I think we echo that same kind of advice. Uh, but Ben, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Really enjoyed the conversation as always. Uh, I'd love to finish with kind of any shout outs, call to actions that you have, you know, where people can find you, the name of your YouTube channel, et cetera. And congratulations, by the way, it's doing very well. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm totally unprepared for this segment of the show, <laughs> but uh, I do have a YouTube channel for anyone that is interested. It's Dr. Ben Miles, I believe. Um, Come check it out. We chat about science related things and breakthroughs and technologies and all of those pieces. If you're interested and uh, kind of scientifically minded or approaching entrepreneurship, check us out at Spin Up Science. Uh, or if you're an investor or applying for investment, check us out at Science Angel Syndicate. Uh, best place to find us. I can 100% vouch for your YouTube channel. Fantastic. I've learned a lot from there already. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. Take care of yourself. Likewise. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers. Bye bye.